All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Hebrews. I hope some of you guys this week maybe bought one of those, uh, one of those study books that's out in the lobby. Those, I think they're all gone now, but you can get them on Amazon. They're like six bucks a pop, but it just has a space for the text of the book of Hebrews on one side and a place for notes on the other. I guess that's, that's pretty, I mean, I, I'm imagining that people are taking notes. I have this very high view of how, you know, that, how that much people are listening, but I do experience all of you like coming to me and saying, oh, no, that's wonderful. I love to take notes. I love to learn. And I do promise there is this kind of balance of like getting lost in the weeds and, and as uh, Larry Tierney says, keeping the cookies on the bottom shelf, right? That that's, that we, we kind of thread that needle in here knowing that you guys have a great capacity for all the ins and outs of, of God's word, but also at the same time, just focusing on what does this mean for us today? And so we'll have a little bit of that um, today. We, did, we have begun this kind of look at a mysterious book of the New Testament. And Hebrews is a sermon, we talked about this last week, a sermon that was written and spoken to a group of believers that was in trouble in the first century. They were in trouble. They were experiencing pressure from a dominant Greco-Roman culture that did not think that Yahweh was the God of the universe, that did not think that Jesus had come and died for their sins. They thought Rome was in charge, and they thought Rome ought to be worshipped. And they were also experiencing pressure from this, this subculture, the Jewish subculture that they had come from, that no doubt was pressuring them as they were talking about Jesus as God. They're like, what are you talking about? There's only one God. And so the pressures of both sides of culture were pushing in on them, pushing them to conform as well as to get back in line. And the author of Hebrews does a few things, and we talked about this last week, that the author of Hebrews, looking at this group of people that is in trouble, experiencing pressure, looks back on some of the mistakes that were made from the past by God's people, soberly. And there is a, there's a pretty healthy um, element of warning in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at that a little bit today and in the coming weeks. But he also urged them to think of their, their pressure, their situation, as a journey that they're on. And that whenever you're on a journey, you go together and you, you listen to your guides and you make it into your destination. And um, as my Peloton instructors say, we didn't come this far just to get this far. Okay, no laughs. Uh, that's what, these are supposed to be motivational things. I'm keeping a list of all of them. Anyway, but there, that, our, that we're on a journey and we're on these three different journeys, the journey into rest, the journey into God's presence, and the journey to the city of God that Abraham could never find, but we will find, we will arrive at the city of God. And finally, what he does is he just says, look, if you're going to make it through this pressure, if you're going to make it through the, the pressure to, to get back in line and the pressure to conform, what you have to do is you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. And you got to lift Jesus high. No matter what you experienced in the past, how you got to God, Jesus is greater, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Levi, greater than high priests, greater than sacrifices, in a better tabernacle, in a better place, a better high priest, all that, Jesus is greater. And you've got you've to fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's one of the things when we come in here, we do. We remove distractions and we call attention to God. We fix our eyes on Jesus because we also are taking this to heart that if in the first century saying, if you're going to make it through, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus because you're in a culture that wants you to conform or to get back in line, we sit up and we say, if we're going to make it, we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross on our behalf. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you do not grow weary and you do not lose heart. Can I get an amen? I mean, weary and losing heart. I mean, to me, this week has been a week of weariness. I've been so discouraged this week. I just have to say, I've been so discouraged this week. Just the images that are coming from Israel and Gaza and all of the suffering and all of the pain and just the, the, the inhumane treatment of other people. It's just so weary to me. And then to hear just responses that are, do not resonate with me. And I just wonder, like, I mean, it's just like, I do not feel at home on this earth. And I feel like, look, if I'm going to make it, I have got to fix my eyes on Jesus, who has been enthroned at the right hand of God, and one day we'll make all things right, but we do not yet see him in that way. It's so hard, so difficult. If we're going to make it, we gotta fly. we're mining out 2,000-year-old wisdom. And even that person, the person who wrote Hebrews, is going to go back, and he's going to quote Scripture, like we had our two readers, Michelle and Jeff, and that Jeff was... Uh, was being the Old Testament, right? Jeff is playing playing a role today, yes. Yeah, so the role of the Old Testament will be played by Jeff, right? So, uh, so I think as we look into this, and what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at this kind of first section of the book of Hebrews and see what the, uh, what the author has said, make some observations, and then talk about how this works for us today. You guys with me? All right, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And I think the first thing that we want to do, the first thing that we, we do, um, oh, by the way, if, if anybody is interested in getting a little bit more in the weeds on some of this stuff, um, I did record a podcast this last week about authorship and audience. I did mention last week, I don't think we know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So if you want to hear the candidates available, you can listen to the podcast. But again, Larry, cookies on the bottom shelf, in the weeds for in the weeds. Okay, so you can look at that. It's available on our website and you can uh, take a look or take a listen to that. All right, so at this passage, we're going to make some observations, and I also have, I'm not a big fill-in-the-blank guy, but today we got some blanks that need to get filled in, okay? I, I, I don't, I'm not always a big fill-in-the-blank guy, but today I thought it was helpful and appropriate that we would fill in some blanks, and so the first thing is this, um, and what the author is doing, um, the first thing that we want to ask is, like, what is an angel, and how is Jesus greater than angels. The first thing that the author is going to note is simply um, the names of angels and Jesus. Look at 1.4. Hebrews 1.4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he goes on to quote two passages. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. We talked briefly about this last week, but the term angel, angelos in Greek, malek in, in Hebrew, is the word for messenger. And angels are simply, at the very basic sense of what they do and who they are, they are messengers. They happen to be messengers sent from heaven. And we talked last week about the book of Hebrews is about heaven and earth meeting together, and that there are these intermediaries, some are sent down from heaven, some are raised up from earth, and Jesus is going to be superior to all that have been sent down or raised up. But the first stop on this journey is that Jesus is greater than the heavenly messengers that have been sent down to earth. They are envoys, and they carry, and heavenly messengers do carry the authority 
of God who is sending them, um, but they are no equal to God himself. And so what he goes on to say is that angels have a name, messenger, but Jesus also has a name. And what is his name? It's son. That angels are messengers sent from heaven, sent from God, but Jesus is God's son. And he goes and he looks in the Old Testament to make these fulfillments. So he quotes Psalm 2, 7, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And most of the quotations that we see in this passage are taken from the Psalms. And so the author goes back and he says, okay, now that Jesus has done his work, where can we find Jesus in the Old Testament? He particularly looks at the Psalms to find a little bit of the identity of who Jesus is. And what he notes is that no angel, no messenger, can claim that God has called him a son. No angel, no messenger can claim that God has called him his son or that God has offered himself as their father. When you consider um, one way of thinking about this, just to get back in the mindset, um, back, in, uh, back in Luke 20, Jesus, on the, um, right after he comes in on like a Palm Sunday passage, he tells a story, this parable of the wicked tenants. Do you guys remember the story? that this, this landowner had gone on a journey, but he rented out his, his vineyard to tenants. And they were supposed to pay him, you know, uh, the, the proceeds of the, of the land and what it produced, but they weren't paying him, so he sent servants. He sent messengers to collect, and they, they uh, mistreated all the messengers and all the servants. And then finally, what the landowner says is, I'm going to send my own son surely they will listen to my own son. In other words, it's one thing to mistreat a messenger. It's another thing to mistreat a son. And so it's not just that angels are better by degree. It's not just that angels are a little better, or I'm sorry, it's not just, back it up. It's not just that the son is a little better than angels. It's that the son is in a whole different category above angels. He's categorically better, not just incrementally better, but categorically better. Angels are messengers, fill in the blank, if you're filling in your blanks. Angels are messengers, Jesus is a son. Angels are messengers, Jesus is a son. And that he'll go on to note that, not like we said, not only does Jesus have a greater name, like he's not just simply better by degree, he is categorically better. Look at 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So Jesus is, you have this uh, ascending, uh, ascending inheritance language, that he's a son, but he's not just a son, he's an, he's an heir, and he's not just an heir, he is the firstborn, or in Greek, the prototokos, the firstborn. And in Hebrew thought, that the firstborn son gets the lion's share of the inheritance. And also the firstborn son is the one who distributes inheritance to the rest of the heirs. So Jesus is not just a son, he's an heir, and he's not just an heir, he is the preeminent heir. He is the one who distributes the inheritance to all other heirs. And in the book of Hebrews, we're going to note that we are also heirs, not of the same type as Jesus, because he is the preeminent, the firstborn. And he's not simply a little better than angels, He's in a different category. The angels don't just say, oh yeah, I honor you. He says, no, the angels worship Jesus. They worship the Son. Let all the angels of God 
worship him. Deuteronomy 32, 43. And so in that second fill in the blank, it says Jesus is son, heir, and favored heir, and angels worship him. Angels worship him. So it's important for us to note that not everything that comes down out of heaven, see, it's one thing to say, all I really want is to get into the heavenly realms, right? That's the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is not just to get into the heavenly realms. The goal is to get into the presence of God the Father and that the sending of the Son is not just one of many within the heavenly realm. And just being in the heavenly realms is enough. It's actually being with God's empowered Son, not just a heavenly being. And I think this is one of the things that we're going to note today that sometimes Christians can get a little bit, even in, in our world, people can get a little bit um, lost with, is like, I'm just looking for spirituality. I'm just looking for something from the heavens that I can relate to. And, and the author of Hebrews is like, look, it's not just whatever's in the spiritual world that you're looking, it's not just if you get spiritual, you're fine. Because the truth is, what we know and what the authors of the Bible know is that in the spiritual realm, you've got good and bad. It's not just, that's great, we're talking to angels or whatever. It's about getting to the sun because the sun is preeminent. The angels are to worship him. As he continues on, look at verse 6, that Jesus is son, heir, favorite heir. Uh, as we go on, look at the end of, the end of verse 6. The author of Hebrews continues with this categorical difference. In 1-7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. That's Psalm 104. And he notes that angels are sent out and they take forms. They take forms which, which are awesome, like wind and fire. And those are awesome. And when, when wind moves strong, like if you're in here with the Santa Ana's come through, Boom, like it'll knock down signage, it'll knock down buildings, like the, the winds can be amazing, and fire can do all kinds of things, right? Very powerful, but both of those images are ethereal, they are changeable, that winds come and go. They have varying degrees, or that fire starts with a spark, and then it burns, and then it smolders out. That angels are taking these forms that change over time. But Jesus is different. 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he also says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. You're not ethereal like wind and fire. You laid foundations. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Even those that are solid will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Forget wind and fire, actual ground and rock, that's all going to wear out. But you are going to remain. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end. So Jesus is not wind and fire. It sounds like a 70s uh, funk band, right? It's Jesus, wind, and fire. Um, okay, thank you. Scratched for the second service, even though we don't have a second service, right? Okay, um, so um, Jesus is not wind and fire. He sits on a throne. He doesn't just come and go. He sits on a throne with a scepter in his hand, and he will not be moved. Again, this idea that the contrast of what angels do 
and what the Son is. Angels are sent out, well, actually, as, as, we, as we fill this, where are we at on our thing? So angels are messengers, Jesus is the Son. Jesus is Son-favored heir, angels worship him. Um, angels, we go back here, angels are finite and changeable servants. They are finite and changeable servants. But Jesus is the eternal and unchangeable king. And so as we walk through this, as we walk through this, we just want to note that the author is making this comparison and making sure that we understand that Jesus is not just a little bit better, he's categorically better. He's different. And a final comparison comes again in 114. As the author quotes Psalm 110, which might be the the most significant psalm for the author of Hebrews throughout the whole book. He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And what we need to see, we talked a little bit about this last week, but what we need to see when we read, Sit down at my right hand, what we need to read is, Be enthroned. That God doesn't just, God doesn't send out. See, angels, angels need to be fast on their feet because they could be deployed at any minute. They're messengers. And so God could send out an angel, but what does he say to the son? You don't have to be fast on your feet. You just need to sit enthroned with authority. Which of the angels has he ever said, hey, take a rest, sit down, rule the world for a while? He doesn't say that to angels. He sends them out on errands. But of the son, he says, You've completed your work for all time. Sit and rule. Sit and reign with a scepter in your hand. You dispatch the angels now. You are the one who sends out angels. And so when the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to these emissaries of the past and even of the present, it's not like angels are done. There are angels that are still at work today and were at work in the first century. We read about them in the New Testament. But they are a footnote compared to the king. It's not, that we're cla- it's not that we're craving access to angels. Jesus has made a way to have access to him and to the Father. We don't have to go through these intermediaries anymore. God might still dispatch angels. That happens. There, I'm sure we have, a, I'll bet in this room, there are stories of where you might have felt like you encountered an angel. And I think that's possible. We read in Scripture that people encounter angels. Sometimes angels come with messages. Angels sometimes show up looking like they need hospitality. We see that in the Old Testament. People have entertained angels without knowing it. Sometimes angels will show up as, as agents of deliverance. That happens. But our, we don't ask God for an angel. We talk to Jesus and we ask God directly. We let God sort that all out. This is a, these are footnotes to things that we don't fully understand. They're mysterious. But we, what is not mysterious is that Jesus has conquered death and that we are able to go directly through him to the Father. We need no other intermediary, and the author of Hebrews wants to make that crystal clear. And even if it's a little harder for us to understand and to kind of get into this world, this is why we're talking about this and doing this now. So sit down in my right hand is be enthroned. Angels are sent out as ministers, as it says in 114. Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation, but Jesus is enthroned as king. Angels are sent out as ministers, but Jesus is enthroned as king. And the last fill in the blank continues on with 114. And when I read this, I'm going to read 114 to 23. And what I want you to listen for is for the word salvation. And I want you to listen to angels and their relationship to salvation and Jesus and his relationship to salvation. There's a categorical difference. Listen to it. 114. Are they not angels? Are angels all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was first declared by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard? And what we find out is that what angels do, this is the categorical difference. Angels are not only lesser than Jesus, they're also lesser than another group, and that's those who inherit salvation. Angels are sent out to serve people like you and I who are inheriting salvation. Salvation is not for the angels per se. Salvation is meant for us. This is why Jesus came not in the form of an angel. He came in the form of a human. He came as a real human being because he didn't come to save angels. He came to save humans. And so he takes on all the attributes of humanity when he becomes, when he is incarnate into this world, when God sends him into the inhabited world. Angels are sent out as ministers. Jesus is enthroned as king. Angels serve the inheritors of salvation. While Jesus, look at what it says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Then he talks about the message declared by angels proved reliable. Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. He says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. If angels serve those who inherit salvation, Jesus comes and he establishes and declares what that salvation is. He's not just a servant of some other salvation. Jesus is the announcer and the establisher of salvation. And so I think as we, as we move from 1-4, and as the author is moving, he's kind of ascending the scale of how much greater Jesus is. And when he gets to salvation, he's like, this is the punchline. This is why Jesus came. This is why it's so important to understand that Jesus is greater than these heavenly intermediaries that have come down in the past. Angels are not even heirs of salvation. They're sent to serve the heirs of salvation while Jesus establishes and declares that salvation is available. And it brings us then to his, what is his punchline? Like why, it's one thing to just have a nice little lecture on Jesus and angels. I mean, that's one thing. And I could appreciate that and maybe some of you can. I just really like going through this. But for the author of Hebrews, this is serving a purpose. And the punchline comes in the passage that we just read. 2-1. 
In other words, why does he start with angels? I think one of the things we do when we look at the book of Hebrews, there's some, there's some great passages in the book of Hebrews, but when we open up the book of Hebrews and we're like, we're so excited, and we read 1, 1 through 4, and it's, oh, this is great, hi, and then it's like, but Je- and Jesus is greater than angels, and we're like, what the heck just happened? Why? Why does he start with angels? Why is that so important? And there's some things in, in, the, in these first four verses of chapter 2 that help us to understand that. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then he starts to talk about the message that has been delivered by angels in the past. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. And what he's talking about, this message delivered by angels, what he's referring to by the first century that there, there was a, uh, in, in Judaism, there was growing consensus that even though Moses met at the burning bush and met God at the burning bush, or that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and met with God and received the law, that in, it, there was a growing consensus in first century Judaism that that encounter at the burning bush was an encounter with an angel that was mediating the presence of God. And that on Mount Sinai, when the law is coming down, that God is so holy that his presence was still being mediated by angels. No extra charge for this, but back, back in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his speech, he says this, in, in Acts chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what he says. He talks about, this is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. That's in the Bible. That's, that's Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. He goes on in Acts chapter 7, 53. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. So there is this, even though we kind of look at our Old Testament, we think, oh, this is Moses is, is, is having a face-to-face conversation with God. There's this growing sense in the first century that these are angelic mediations, And this is what the author of Hebrews seems to be thinking, that it is the angels who have delivered the law. Even Paul, in in Galatians 3.19, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels. That's Galatians 3.19. So this whole point is this. If you're in a dominant Greco-Roman subculture, and you have this subculture of Jewish sub this Jewish subculture and the Jewish subculture in whatever city this is in is look you got to be Torah observant you got to eat kosher you got to obey Sabbath you've got all these regulations of the law of Torah you've got to keep you've got to keep and now as people are coming to faith in Jesus and they're like well in order for me to come to faith in Jesus I have to have brother and sisterhood with Gentiles and like do I make them become Torah obedient do I make them eat kosher do I make them obey Sabbath regulations? And this, in this inclusive sense that Jesus is going to say, look, you don't have to keep kosher anymore. And that in order to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you don't have to obey, you don't have to become Jewish in order to believe in Jesus. But there's all this pressure from this, dominant, this subdominant subculture. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, look, what we've heard from Jesus outranks the giving of Torah because Torah, as great as it was, and get, don't, it's not that angels are bad or Torah is bad, 
It's that they're good, but of a lesser degree by category. That the message that Jesus has proclaimed of salvation now overrules what has come through angels in Torah. So it might, as much as it might be like, you're like, because you're probably not maybe feeling the pressure to keep Torah or to keep Sabbath or Jewish festivals, it might not hit us as hard, but for the, the readers of Hebrews, this, is, this argument is that Torah is simply given by angels. It's awesome and good for its purpose, but when the Son of God speaks, you got to listen. you got to sit up and pay attention unless you're going to miss out. If the law had its regulations, and if you obeyed it, you were blessed, and if you disobeyed, things went bad. Imagine what happens if you ignore the greatest revelation of all time. So that's the point. That's, that's essentially the point of this first chapter. Angels delivered the paramount revelation of God to Israel, and it was confirmed and established and followed, and there were benefits from it. But now that Jesus is no simple messenger. He's a son enthroned, and he himself delivers the ultimate message of salvation. And if we're to say, you know, I just prefer the previous. It would be like if you showed up at, at, at a college class, you're going to take a class on computers, okay? And you showed up, and, you know, there's all this talk in the world about, like, AI and your cell phone and the new iPhones and all the computing that's going on in the world and the amazing things that are happening. And you were like, you know, what I really would like to talk about is the ENIAC. And you'd be like, what's the ENIAC? It's like it was the first computer by IBM. It was like in the ground floor, a whole floor of a, of a building. It weighed 50 tons, and your iPhone does better computing than it did. But you're like, you know what, I just want to focus on that. I really think that's the way forward. I really think that if we're going to understand computing, we should go back to 1946 and the ENIAC. And that's not, what he's saying is if you, want, if you want to go forward, you need to be on the cutting edge, and Jesus is on the cutting edge. He is the most significant revelation of who God is. And the author is going to make the point that Jesus comes with a better message about salvation, ultimate salvation. He's the Son of God, the King and Creator of the universe. And so talk about angels and Torah ought to begin to wane and interest in and attention to Jesus and the salvation that he brings ought to grow. And he uses two terms, two terms of warning here. Look at 2.3. Or 2.1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. And in 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, neglecting and drifting away? And I want to say this, angels are fascinating and mysterious beings. And they're still at work today that we've talked about. Angels are still at work today, and like I said, I think we could probably hear stories about we feel like we may have, might have had an angelic encounter. I've had, I have friends that tell me these stories, and I have this like grid that I run it through, but I always take people at their word. I feel like angels are active today in this world. And they're the cause of a lot of speculation today, but in the first century, there was kind of an explosion. We don't really see it because it's not really in the Bible. It's in what we call the intertestamental period or Second Temple Judaism. There's kind of an explosion of literature about angels 
A lot of speculation about angels. And even in the book of Colossians, it talks about the danger of like invoking or worshiping angels. And I'm not saying that that's what's going on here, but there was this kind of fascination with the mysterious and the esoteric and the novel. And, you know, that doesn't happen today at all. Right? And I think that we can, when, we're in, when you're in relationship with God, and sometimes, hard, sometimes God is hard to understand. And sometimes we go through periods where we might experience a little bit of dryness. We come to the word, it's, it doesn't feel as alive as, as maybe one time it did. And there could be a, a bit of a temptation to just find something shiny and new. To find something mysterious and esoteric. Something that we don't understand. Like kind of, rather than the meat and potatoes, we want dessert after dessert after dessert after dessert. And we're constantly looking for the new trend. And nothing against it, but a while back there was like the prayer of Jabez. You guys remember the prayer of Jabez? And it was a big thing. It was kind of a, a huge thing in the Christian world. And I always was like, you know, when Jesus was asked, Jesus, teach us to pray. He's like, hey, do you remember that guy Jabez? No, he said, this is a, the Lord's prayer. Like I was, I was always like, why are we... Why are we looking back at this kind of obscure, weird prayer in the Old Testament when Jesus himself said, this is how you pray? You know what I mean? Like we, sometimes we lose focus because we're looking for something lost or secret or mysterious or esoteric or something that's going to be the key to the next phase of our Christian life. Like whatever it is. And, and I think if the author of Hebrews was here, he'd be like, just press into Jesus. There's more there than you know. Just press in. Endure make it through. It's like you'll come up over another vista. This is like a journey. And every journey you're walking and you come up over the next vista and something new and beautiful and amazing is going gonna, is gonna to come. But you've got to go up the hill first. Don't lose track. Don't neglect. Don't drift away. Recently I got an email from our district superintendent Tim Jacobs um, Tim Jacobs is in Arizona. Anyway, good guy. He's our new district superintendent. And he was saying, hey, I want to do this race. Um, I want to do this race. It's from San Diego to Huntington Beach. It's 200 miles. It's called the Ragnar Run. I don't know if you guys have heard this. And you put together teams of 10, and you run these 200 miles. And he's like, I'm trying to get together a group of 10 lead pastors to do this. And I'm like, you talking to me? Like, is that email? To me? Anyway, so I called him, I'm like, tell me about it. And I told him, yeah, I just did, uh, I just did this thing. And he's like, oh, you can totally do this. So he's like, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I haven't run in about a decade. Like, I, I've tried to stay fit, but I had, a, like, a calf injury. And so I'm, he's like, look, just train, just do that. But what I had done over the last decade is I had neglected running. And over the last, like, three weeks, four weeks, what I've done is I started to be attentive to it. I started, and look, I started, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jog a tenth of a mile, and then I'm going to walk a tenth of a mile. I'm going to jog a tenth of a mile, walk a tenth of a mile. And so it was just like that. It was just over like that. And now I'm like keeping track of my times. I'm writing in a journal. I've got like a little pizza roller that I'm like rolling out all my muscles. Stuff like, that. like I am being attentive. I had neglected it for a long time, but now I'm being attentive. I think this last summer, too, as we, come back, we came back and we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, for me, that was just, that's just been a, a movement of attentiveness to prayer. And I don't feel like I had completely neglected it, but there have been times where it's just like drif drifting away from prayer. And it's like, no, let's get back to attentiveness. Attentiveness. 
to prayer. And that's why I love that we're, we're on this journey of every person in the congregation saying the Lord's Prayer at least once every day until Christmas. Because it's just about, look, we don't want to neglect. We just want to be attentive. And I suppose as we read this, as we read this, just to ask ourselves and just to do a little diagnostic, it's not a bad thing. It's not like you're, like, it might not, you might be off by just a degree. You might be off by a lot. You might be going in the wrong direction. But there's always this call to just be attentive and just say, okay, it's time to reorient. And I guess the question that I would just have for you is like, is there anything in your life of faith that you feel like that God is just like, even as I'm talking, that you're, that the Holy Spirit's saying like, yeah, maybe you've neglected that. Maybe it's just a call to attentiveness. And for me this summer, it was prayer. And it has been this fall. And it's been, and I think even as we go into the next season, as we go into even the service and what it looks like in our service, to have times of prayer, to have places where if you're looking for someone to pray for you, you can come down to the front on the side or in the back or over on each side where you can be prayed for. And that we all need that. That there would be times where I need to, I've got to go down, I've got to get prayed for. Right? That we want to be attentive to this. And so as we, he, as we just hear the word of the book of Hebrews, in the first century, they might have had pressures to neglect or to drift away and focus on other things. But there was this call to fix your eyes on Jesus, to be attentive to what he's doing. And just for us to have the, a soft heart to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm open. Would you just show me maybe a place where I might not have been as attentive as I could be. And a, a non-judgmental, just a matter of refocusing. Like, this is not about guilt. It's not about shame. God rejoices. He rejoices, and he'll say, I love that you're thinking about being attentive. Here's an area that I think you could attend to. Maybe it's running. Hopefully not. Let's all, injury-free. There was a time in my life where I exercised to win something. Now, when I exercise, my only goal is not to get hurt. Okay? Whatever it is, what, but attend to a prayer. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the Bible. Maybe you're like, hey, I feel like there's a new, I, I want to have a new experience in God's word. Maybe it's a practice of prayer. Maybe it's even just taking some time of silence and solitude. Maybe it's just turning off, maybe it's removing some inputs in your life, like, I'm just going to turn off AM radio, or I'm going to turn off cable news. I'm just going to remove an input, because I don't feel like that input is keeping me attentive. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying, maybe it, it, the Spirit, I would imagine the Holy Spirit is working on everyone in here. We pray at the beginning of every service, we invite the Spirit in to do the Spirit's work on us including the team. Everyone up here is like God's working on us every Sunday. And so it's just it's an invitation. And the author of Hebrews offers us this invitation. Where am I neglecting? Where am I drifting away? Where can I be, have a renewed attentiveness? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And even as we just take a moment and just kind of quietly remove the distractions around us, maybe if that means closing your eyes or just looking down at the ground or um, whatever it is, just an opportunity right now. One, just proclaim to the Lord in your own thoughts, in your own mind, 
just the greatness of Jesus that you hear this comparison and you recognize Jesus you are king Jesus you're not just a little better than everything you are categorically better And maybe if there is something that has kind of stolen your attention, just to say, God, is this something that has stolen my attention? Would you make it clear to me what my path forward is with this? Because I want to be attentive to Jesus. I want to fix my eyes on Jesus.